Welcome to City of God, a podcast of the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. My name is Dr. Owen Strand, and I'll be your host. Join us each week as we engage the city of man with the biblical wisdom of the city of God. Welcome to City of God. Today on the podcast, we have Dr. Tom Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner is the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's a world-known biblical theologian and New Testament scholar, and he's a friend of mine. It's a joy to have him on the podcast, so welcome, Tom, to the podcast. Uh, Owen, it's great to be with you. Wonderful to talk together. Well, I really appreciate you making the time. You have recently authored the book, Spiritual Gifts, What They Are and Why They Matter. It's for B&H, and uh, as with so many of your writings, it is uh, clear, richly biblical, and instructive. So thank you for this book. I, I would love to hear uh, what birthed this project for you. Yeah, it's not a book I was really thinking of writing, but um, our preaching pastor at Clifton Baptist, John Kimball, asked me for the men's retreat of our church to speak on spiritual gifts, and I told him I didn't want to. I <laughs> I want to speak on prayer. I'd had three talks I'd prepared on prayer, and I was excited about them. Then he just said, well, pray about it. And as I thought about it, I decided, yeah, I, I, I will speak on spiritual gifts. So I did a lot of research. I gave three talks at the retreat. I did a lot of research. Then, honestly, that was going to be the end of it. I wasn't going to write it up. But my next-door neighbor, who you know well, uh, Owen, named Oren Martin, Mm -hmm. Oren, uh, you know, five or six months went by after I gave the talks at the retreat, and Oren kept telling me I should write it up. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. But, you know, having someone repeatedly say that to to me uh, started getting me thinking, and yep, so after five or six months, I decided to write it up, and it's... You know, it wasn't a hard book to write up because I'd basically done the research, and it's semi-popular. I don't think I write popular books, but semi-popular. It's not a technical book. It's a it's a book I think you could give to anybody in your church who's interested in reading. Probably it's a book you could read in an evening pretty easily. Well, it's very interesting. It's a rather short book. <clears throat> it is. It's It's less than 200 pages. And uh, it sounds to me like the origins of the project are not dissimilar. I know you love to read Calvin, his institutes. You say you read that on a regular basis, once a year or something, I've, I've seen you said. So it sounds like you had a couple Pharrells there who uh, implored you to write on spiritual gifts the way Pharrell implored Calvin to be in Geneva. Yeah, yeah, except that they didn't pronounce a curse over me if I didn't. You know? <laughs> Well, that's that's yeah, yeah. Well, the Lord, the Lord used others to uh, to bring this book about. Well, that's fun to know, and uh, I see also in your introduction that you talk about Founders Baptist Church in Houston, and and you preached some of the material there. And uh, in reading the book in preparation for the interview, uh, it comes off as if you have uh, written this book to be very used, widely used in in church life and and understood. And that's a a feature, as I have said, of your writing. Uh, It's it's high level, 
It's robustly theological and exegetical, of course, but it's it's easy to understand, and uh, and that, that's a gift, and it's a, a blessing to the Church. So I'm thankful you did that on a topic like spiritual gifts, which is so controverted and, uh, frankly, confusing for a lot of Christians. Why do you think believers would need a book about the spiritual gifts? Why is it that something so exciting, in other words, as spiritual gifts, can be so confusing to us? One thing that's encouraging to think about is that Paul himself says, I don't want you to be ignorant about spiritual gifts to the Corinthians. And I take it he says that because they should know about them on the one hand. And then on the other hand, uh, there'd be no need to write about the subject unless there were some confusion. So I think we see that from the very beginning. Even in Corinth, there was some confusion about spiritual gifts, and and there's still confusion today. As, as you know, on there are different views out there, and there are good Christians on both sides who love the Bible, who believe it's authoritative, infallible, and inerrant. And so... You know, the ordinary Christian uh, is confused. What, what, what should they think about these things? And Paul wants us to know, the New Testament wants us to know uh, about these matters. One of the gifts that is most widely discussed, there are several, really. One of the most discussed, though, is the gift of prophecy. And there's not actually a ton of agreement, even historically, post-Reformation, about what prophecy is. So as you have graciously said, uh, evangelicals, warm-hearted, Christ-loving followers um, disagree, frankly, on some of these matters. But then even if you want to talk about, you know, the more hard Reformed tradition, even in the Reformed tradition, there's not exactly one precise view. You you quote Perkins to the effect that uh, prophecy, the gift of prophecy, is equated with preaching. Um, we'll sometimes hear that today. Others will say that um, prophecy is sort of instantaneous utterance, which may or may not be from God definitively. How do you, at base, understand the gift of prophecy? Yeah, I think that's a very helpful introduction. I'd like to just reflect on, for a moment, uh, your mention of William Perkins, because Perkins, the famous Puritan, wrote a, a book that's still very worth reading today called The Art of Prophesying. Again, it's a very short little book. And what he means by that is The Art of Preaching. And that book is worth reading, but I actually think Perkins is wrong to call prophecy preaching. Hmm. I think that leads us astray. I think prophecy, prophets and preachers are not precisely the same thing, although sometimes prophets do preach. Hmm. But I would define prophecy as the reception of revelations from God and then the communication of those revelations so received. In, 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 a, in that sense, then, they are instantaneously received. Hmm. So, so those who preach, at least they should prepare... And preaching is based on an already written text. But prophecy is not a reflection per se on a text. 
Although you may be thinking, prophets may be thinking of texts when they receive prophecies, mm-hmm. but they're not quite the same thing because it's a reception of a revelation from God, and then a, the, the, the perfect, infallible communication of that revelation. And that's where I differ from others. I don't know if you want to talk about this more, but there's a, a common view out there that New Testament prophecy is mixed with air, and I, I reject that view. Yeah, I would love to talk about that, because I think there's so little clarity on these matters. Again, n- not just among the broad mass of evangelicals, but even among the, the mass of, you know, exegesis-interested conservative evangelicals. So please, if you could spell that out further as to why some think that New Testament prophecy is not definitive from, from God. So, so the argument, which is quite common among Reformed Charismatics, Reformed Charismatics whom I love and respect, their argument is that Old Testament prophecy is authoritative, infallible, and inerrant, but that New Testament prophecy is distinct from Old Testament prophecy, and therefore New Testament prophets can utter prophecies that are partially mistaken. And, and, and why would anybody say that? Well, some, a couple of the arguments are they think Agabus in Acts 21 makes a mistake regarding his prophecy about what, what would happen to Paul, where Agabus says that the, the Jews will bind Paul and hand him over to the Romans. They say that's not what happened. Instead, the Romans rescued uh, Paul uh, from the Jews who were trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. So that Agabus's prophecy is partially in air, and then then the other argument, and there's more than two, but the other major argument I think is that Paul says in First Corinthians 14 that we're to evaluate and judge the prophecies, and their argument is we're not judging the prophets, but their prophecies. We're evaluating whether their prophecies are correct. And the prophecies need evaluation because, and, and they need to be sifted because they're mixed with air. Mm-hmm. There's some mistake in them. If, if their prophecies contain some air, so the argument goes, they're not false prophets. They, 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 they're, they're, uh, they're, their prophecies are just partially wrong. So those are two of the main arguments that are used. Yeah, I thought your treatment of uh, that latter category, in other words, those who, uh, you know, are our prophets, and whether what they say is true or not, was one of the most helpful features of your book, Spiritual Gifts. Because, as you point out, the concept of prophets and then false prophets is not only found in the Old Testament, it is found there, but it's also found in the New. And in both the Old and the New, you bring out, with some detail, the way you tell a true from a false prophet is whether their words are true or not. Is that a fair summation? I, I, that is an absolutely crucial point in my book, yes. I, so I, I think it would, it, the, the problem with the notion that New Testament prophecies are mixed with errors, how, how are you going to discern false prophets? 
I think you have a nightmare scenario now. Yes. Because a, a prophet who prophesies falsely can simply say, well, I, I just made some mistakes. But, but then, how, how in the world can we begin to say, well, that's a false prophet, and that's a true prophet? And, and as you also said uh, rightly, but I want to camp on it for a moment. Yes. The, the other view says, well, you can only, you can only, you're only discerning the prophecies, not the prophets. But again, I want to say there's no other way to discern whether a prophet is a true or false prophet apart from assessing their words. So that they, they make, the other side makes such a big deal out of, well, it's the word, it's the utterances, not the prophet. But, but that's how you evaluated prophets in the Old Testament. As, as I like to say, you didn't, you don't look at their faces and see if they have a nice smile. Mm-hmm. The way you discern whether they're true prophets is by whether their words come true. It's remarkable that we're told that none of, none of Samuel's words fell to the ground. Mm-hmm. And of course, Deuteronomy 18 says that a true prophet always speaks the truth. That that's so vital. Um, I'm I'm looking as you're talking, thinking through different biblical texts. I'm looking at Second Peter two. You think about verse one here. But there were also false prophets. Peter says among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, they will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. That's obviously you, that that verse has numerous things to pull pull back apart and think more about. But uh, it's interesting there in Second Peter 2, and this isn't a text you directly cite that I recall, but you, you have this linkage between false prophets and false teachers. Um, and so the way to tell, to, to use your argument, which I find quite persuasive, the way to tell the difference between a false prophet, whether that category continues or has ceased, and a false teacher is to evaluate their teaching and whether they bring the truth, so to speak, or they bring heresies or false words. Yeah, yeah. And and I think we could add to that first John four. Uh, John says there's many false prophets who have come into the world and we have to test the spirits to see if they're from God. And if prophecy is mixed with air, how in the world do we do that? Um, I think it's very difficult. And then we have trouble warning people about other ministries where somebody says they're a true prophet, but they, they teach terrible things, they have effectively become the same kind of teacher as the good-hearted, uh, well-intentioned evangelical friend who also is bringing prophecy that is not true. So we, we have this very strange category where I guess the only difference ends up being uh, intent and motivation between the uh, sort of devilish false teacher or false prophet and the mistaken but well-intentioned false prophet. But that's, you would argue, that's not a New Testament category. Yeah, yeah. I think what, I think what they call prophecy is uh, better called impressions. Uh, and, um, I, you know, some people have said to me after... I didn't talk about this in the book, but they said to me after reading the book, well, where do you get this category of impressions? 
But I think it's really pretty commonsensical. And I'd point to 1 Corinthians 16. Paul, uh, I think it's verse 11 or 12, somewhere around there. Paul, Paul exhorts Apollos to go visit the Corinthians. And Apollos uh, says no. He, doesn't, he says, uh, not right now. And Paul says, well, come when he has an opportunity. Well, I don't, I don't think that's an apostolic command. Because then Apollos, I don't think, would have said no. Uh, I, think, I think Paul had an impression a sense a, uh, uh, that, that Apollos should go visit. Mm-hmm. But Apollos, following the Lord himself, said no. So those, mm. those impressions, those hunches, those feelings, those senses we have, they're not infallible. And Paul didn't think they were infallible. Paul, Paul wasn't speaking an apostolic word to Apollos. He was giving them some advice. Uh, and Apollos said, you know what, I don't think that's what the Lord's leading me to do right now. So, so the, the other side, I think, describes in, impressions, but they define it as prophecy. Mm. But the problem is, when you read the Bible, prophecy is infallible and authoritative and inerrant. So you end up with a big problem. How, how can you ignore prophecies? Well, of course, their answer is because they're mistaken, in part. Mm-hmm. But again, that lands us in the other problem we were talking about earlier. And and I know you're, you you know Edwards so well. I, I quote Edwards in the book who says something like, if you live on the basis of impressions, God can use impressions, mm-hmm. but if you base your life upon them, and you say, I'm going to live based on impressions, on these subjective senses you have, uh, Edwards says something like, you'll be like a jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> and, and let's put that in modern idiom. I think what Edwards means is you'll be wacko. <laughs> <laughs> so you can't live based on impressions. God can use them, but that's not the ordinary way to live life. I think that's really helpful, uh, and I think that's nuanced and careful as well. You know, you also reference in your text 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says that he wishes that all would be as he is, uh, meaning single. And uh, this isn't the exact category of impression that you're citing, but it's not dissimilar in that even in Scripture itself, we have places where the biblical authors will say something that is not necessarily a divine command, if we can use that language, but is nonetheless their own felt desire or something like this. I'm not using precise terminology here. And Paul is careful in, in those places, um, generally speaking, to say that he's not, he's not handing down the once and for all word. We know that God loves marriage, and we know that, frankly, we need marriage to continue for the uh, future generations to exist. So, so we have to be yeah. careful here in that uh, we leave a place for God to nudge us, to use your term, which I think is right, and Edwards does, but also uh, not to put not to put our faith in the impression. Uh, that's the the danger I hear you warning against, and I think that's that's well needed. Yeah, I think that's a I think that's a very good example from First Corinthians seven, and uh, you, you probably know the story from Spurgeon's ministry. And Spurgeon was a cessationist; believed he believed the gifts had ceased. But one time when he was preaching, uh, he looked up in the balcony and pointed at a person and said, uh, 
something about him stealing Columbus. And he was right. (laughs) Now, um, Spurgeon didn't believe he had to get the prophecy. I think God impressed that on his heart. Mm. I think God can do that in a dramatic way. But here's the thing. Spurgeon didn't say, you know what, that worked really well. I'm going to try that every week. (laughs) Mm -hmm. As far as I know, he never did that again. Mm. So, um, you know, that's the danger on the other side, because people say on the other side, well, you're a cessationist then you don't think God does miracles or he heals or does dramatic things. Mm-hmm. But I do believe God does miracles and heals and does dramatic things, but they're, but they're out of the ordinary. That, that's the point I'd make. They're, they're relatively rare. I think that's true, and I think a place to go that fits with this overall line of argument is the, the gift of healing, which you treat in the book. If the gift of healing is fully operative today. We don't just need to see isolated instances of really amazing and, and you know, spiritually blessing acts of healing. We need to see people uh, distinctively marked who have the ability to heal in an apostolic sense. And that's one of the things I, I appreciated about you is that you reason, you reason it out logically. So, in other words, uh, you make the case in the book, and, and I say similar things in my teaching, my classes here at Midwestern, if you, if you have the gift of healing, you need to do apostolic healing, honestly. Uh, you really do need to be able to raise the dead. I am not going to say, personally, that that could never happen in our world in the 21st century, and you don't say it that way either, but I am comfortable saying I have never met somebody who I can point to who has that ability as a uh, dependable, definable gift. Yeah, I think that's very well said, and I, I, I agree. Uh, I, I was at a conference with a very godly uh, pastor who claimed in their church they were healing uh, TMJ, sports injuries, back injuries, like lengthenings. But he was also claiming the signs and wonders of the apostles. So I raised my hand and I said, do you, do you ever heal anybody who's uh, uh, crippled or, or blind or mm. has cancer? And he, he was a very honest person, and he his exact words are, we don't do those. Huh. We don't do those. Well, I, I believe God, I, I, as you said, I, I think God could do those such such things today, but whatever was happening in his church, I don't think it was the signs and wonders of the apostles, mm-hmm. because the, 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 the apostles were seeing people lame walking, and the blind seen, and the dead raised, and that, that, that'd be pretty easy to document if that's happening. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and all of this is connected to the era in which these gifts are being used. It's the apostolic era, as you bring out. It's the first century. It's when the Word is being verified by God through these different miraculous doings. Uh, the apostles do have the ability to perform a, a lot of these uh, these gifts uh, on a regular basis in a way that we don't. And for that reason, you go to Ephesians 2.20 uh, t- to help us understand why prophets, and let's go back to prophecy for a minute, but it's all related, the gift of healing as well, why prophets would not be uh, in operation today 
as an ongoing ministry of the church. Paul says that uh, the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Am I correct in thinking that it is that term, foundation, uh, foundation of the apostles and prophets, that points us away from seeing this foundation is still being built? In other words, it has been built, correct? Uh, absolutely. That, that, that foundation has been laid. And, and even many continuationists, they agree that there are not apostles mm-hmm. in the technical sense that there were in the first century. So the apostles and prophets, two distinct gifts, those gifts laid, and those gifted people laid the foundation of the church doctrinally, and that foundation has been laid, and honestly, it's it's dangerous if we would think that there's anyone around today adding to that foundation. Mm-hmm. That, that, and, and you expressed this well earlier, but the ministry, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we see a, uh, signs, wonders, miracles, apostles, prophets, accrediting, ratifying, verifying uh, that ministry, laying, the, laying down the faith once for all delivered to the faith, uh, saints, Jude, verse 3, mm. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. So we don't, we don't need it any longer, any apostolic or prophetic words. We, we, have, we have those words in the Scriptures. And they're, they're our touchstone. Nothing can be added to that foundation. Now we await, as Hebrews says, and other places in the New Testament, we, we await uh, the next great event in redemptive history, which is the coming of Jesus Christ. So there are aspects of the first century that endure, and here I'm meaning offices handed down to us, the office of of pastor, uh, the teacher of the church, uh, the elders being pastors of the church, and then another office, the office of deacon. Uh, But then there are a number of these offices and a number of these gifts that have been, is it correct to say, fulfilled? Is that the language we should use? In other words, we're called sometimes cessationists if we hold the view that you have staked out in the book Spiritual Gifts— and that, that I am saying I agree with, we're, we're called cessationists. But, uh, Tom, do you think that's the best term, honestly? Is it, uh, n- not that it's, it's uh, a false term, but maybe it's more accurate, and I know you, you do a good bit of work and promise and fulfillment in terms of what's called progressive covenantal theology, your own version of it. Is it more, is it more appropriate to say that we're fulfillmentists or something like this because of our... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I like that. I mean, that, it might be helpful, and I haven't done this work, but it might be helpful to think of, of better terms to express what's going on here. Because, as you know, by the terms we use, we fall in the rut in, in the way we think about things. And so I, I haven't done that, but it might be helpful to think of new ways of expressing uh, what, what we believe. Because, as you point out, we don't believe all the gifts of cease. Right. So, we're not we're not an absolute cessationist, but the the controversy always centers on 
prophecy and tongues and miracles and healing. It does, and honestly, Fulfillmentist is not exactly rolling off the tongue here, uh, so let that be said and be believed among the listeners of this podcast. But uh, but we are pointed to something when we're talking about fulfillment. We're pointed to what Jesus has done. We're pointed to uh, the closing of the canon. Um, you, you have critique of the view that reference to the perfect um, refers to the closing uh, of the canon. But we do understand that there hasn't been new revelation written, and that's not a bad thing for us. It's actually a good thing uh, that these things have come to fulfillment. So I wonder sometimes if cessationists almost cede too much ground. This isn't a critique of you or your book. I just, I honestly wonder this about us. We are kind of tagged, for better or worse, as the anti-miracle, anti-supernatural party, when really that's that's not the case. It, it must not be the case anyway among us. Yeah, and, and how wonderful it is to have had now for 2,000 years God's uh, final and definitive revelation. And you know, as a student of Church history, what a blessing it is to study the Scriptures. But not only that, to have the advantage of studying the Scriptures with all the great uh, teachers of the Church who have preceded us, mm. so that we, uh, we, we, we truly can know the truth and, of the Gospel, and uh, that that Revelation, once for all, delivered to the saints. We have not a perfect understanding of it, but a very good understanding of it. So, in conclusion, the gift of prophecy um, does not belong to this era. Uh, The apostles and prophets, praise God, not a bad thing, have laid the foundation for our faith. We can now trust the holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient Word of God— We're not, however, in your handling, nuanced handling, scared of the Holy Spirit and promptings or nudges from the Spirit. Uh, We we do have a category uh, for impressions in our own life and the lives of others, but our fundamental confidence is not placed in either our kind of on-the-spot thinking or mystical feeling. Our confidence and hope is placed in the unshakable Word of God. Is that a fair... Is that a fair ending statement? Yeah, uh, that, that's, that's a very nice way of putting it. I, yeah, I completely agree. Well, I, I really appreciate your work in the book, Spiritual Gifts. Uh, I, I have profited from your ministry in so many different ways, I and so many others. Uh, so thank you so much for taking the time to be on City of God today, Dr. Schreiner. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Owen. It's been a delight to talk to you today. Likewise. Thanks for listening to City of God, a podcast at the Center for Public Theology at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. We're so thankful you stopped by. We encourage you to continue to join the conversation at cpt.mbts.edu, the official website of the center. And we encourage you to follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Join us in coming days as we continue the conversation on what it means to be the city of God in the city of man. Midwestern Seminary's 81-hour Master of Divinity degree prepares you for ministry today and tomorrow. Midwestern Seminary's flagship degree program is our primary track for ministry preparation. Requiring only 81 credit hours, the MDiv program is an efficient option for students, equipping them to serve the church in pastoral ministry. 
Residential students will be trained in a unique community environment passionately focused on the local church. Online students can earn the full degree without leaving their current ministry context. Come be a part of one of the fastest growing seminaries in North America as we develop a new culture of discipleship devoted to the local church and committed to taking God's unchanging word into a rapidly changing world. Visit mbts.edu slash mdiv today.